So something you'll find, and I'm, I'm curious to see if you've run across this and if you may have opinions on it. There are a lot of fertilizer providers who aim specifically for the cannabis market. You know, they're making, um, usually it's organic hydroponic nutrient supplies. And there's a lot of that is geared towards the cannabis market. And the QA knowledge in that sector is like not where you would need it to be for food purposes yet. <laughs> And so I have clients who are buying that stuff and they're trying to pass a food safety audit. Um, but it's like a complete jug of mystery meat, you know, <laughs> in that fertilizer. And in order to pass a, a food safety audit, you have to know exactly what your fertilizers are. Um, you need to have micronutrient, not micronutrient analysis, excuse me. Uh, you need to know your heavy metals contents. You need to know the ingredients. And the folks who make cannabis fertilizers, like geared towards that market, don't know what any of that is. And so you ask them for it and they think you're trying to steal their recipe. And you're like, no, dude, if I wanted to make fertilizer for a living, that's what I'd be doing. I need to pass my food safety audit. So that's been a really interesting experience is anytime I have a food grower whose staff came from the cannabis side, that's a roadblock we always run into. Um, curious to see if you have any run-ins or experiences with that as well. No, that's a great point. And um you know, you mentioned fertilizer, but it's that way with many growing materials in general, whether it be substrates. Um, can't think of anything off the top of my head right now, but there, there's many, many people and many companies have tried to attack this industry in this way. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I agree that many growers come into challenges when they buy just already pre-mixed um, fertilizers, you know, and they don't they don't fully understand the let's say at least the the basic ratios of the macros and minors, um, and they also don't understand how much they could possibly save if they were to to understand to that extent and start to even mix these different salts themselves, um, and that is a huge that is a huge challenge that I think many many individuals who come into cannabis face because in some in some ways nutrition itself is just very complex and in other crops there's plenty of research and literature already available that expresses that nitrogen and calcium should be 1 to 1 calcium to magnesium should be uh, 3 to 1 you know and it gives you these parameters either in ratios or at least in parts per million or something to grasp to go off of and in in cannabis it's um we're, you know, in many ways, growers are having to learn along the way with different cultivars because that research and that that literature is not out there yet. Yeah, and I mean that's um that's kind of the shape of it when you're in the developing industry, especially when um I mean there's there's a big body of folks who know how to grow stuff in greenhouses and just outdoors in horticulture, and there are a lot of folks who've been growing cannabis for a long time and like rarely shall the twain meet. So <laughs> it's just kind of funny watching both of them kind of feel their way towards each other. Um, do yeah, you? and I've it's it, I don't mean to interrupt, but um, mm -hmm. like a good example is you know we've had some we've had some growers let's say that come that have come from tomato, and um, I've worked a little bit with tomato, and something that was fascinating to me was that in some cases in tomato production you can apply an EC out of the irrigation onto the plant uh, at around three. And the substrate itself could end up having a buffer EC of around five. Um, and if, if that crop is the only crop that you've ever grown, those ECs are going to fry mm -hmm. a cannabis plant. <laughs> right. And it's going to fry a poinsettia. It's going to fry, you know, anything else. And it's that, that even though, you know, let's say we have someone who's come from another industry, there's still a learning curve in many senses to cannabis 
Um, and so, yeah, everyone's dealing with that. Something weird that I ran into that people claimed was a cannabis thing. Um, so now I want to fact check that. <laughs> um, I had I had some ran into a place once that was supplementing carbon dioxide by burning propane inside a closed building. Um, which, if you're listening and you're not like from a horticulture background, here's the problem with that: is when you burn propane, it makes ethylene, or it can make trace amounts of ethylene, right? And they were trying to grow a lot of like um, they had a nursery crop. You know, they had like a germination chamber, among other things. And ethylene is that gas that comes out of apples that makes things turn ripe. So the ripening process for plants, it's its like a slow Shakespearean death, right? they It's its a death process. So you're basically telling the fruit with ethylene, time to die now. And its dying process just happens to be ripening. So if you give that it's time to die now signal of ethylene to young plants, they're not going to grow. They just kind of like turn yellow and, and get nasty. And... Uh, you kind of knock them out of their juvenile, it's time to grow up phase, and you knock them into it's time to die now. It's a, excuse me, it's a plant hormone. It tells them to, to die. So if you're using burning propane to supplement your carbon dioxide, <laughs> you're going to make a little bit of ethylene, and you're going to tell your, all your baby plants it's time to die now. And so their plants were coming out weird looking and just kind of yellow and kind of like depressing and sad. And they were like, we think it's something wrong with our nutrient mix. And uh, I was like, I mean, that could be, but let's look at this propane issue, you know, like <laughs> this should not be done. And they were telling me, no, it's fine because cannabis people do propane burning for, for CO2 supplementation all the time and it's normal. And what am I smoking? Which is really interesting. And so now I just want to fact check that. Is that a thing people really do? I I personally have not seen that. No. Okay. I was like, <laughs> um, that doesn't feel I, right. I, well, but you, you touch on a good topic, Sarah, because, you know, Cannabis is the only crop that I'd say we're growing at this scale um, indoors. And even though, let's say, they're using liquid CO2 and not propane, um, there's so many other facets of the other environmentals that could possibly be contributing to the ethylene levels within different grow facilities. And um, ethylene does it does exactly what you say. It causes senescence. And that in many ways, let's say if they have certain levels of ethylene during flowering, it's going to cause flower distortion, flower abortion. It may cause hermaphrodism. Um, and it's going to in inevitably negatively affect their yields. And that is something that is very difficult for a grower to test. Um, so yeah, ethylene. Ethylene is an issue, and I'm thankful to say that I have not seen that. <laughs> and then I kind of want to back it up a little bit. You mentioned that ethylene can cause a lot of side effects in the flowering phase of cannabis. Um, one of them is just flowers are malformed. Uh, they can just die prematurely. Another one is they can become... So with flowers, we have what we call perfect and imperfect flowers. So, and I don't know if this is how cannabis works or if they just have male and female flowers. But in botany, if a flower has both male and female parts, it's a perfect flower. And imperfect flowers are like, you know, they're just one or the other. So you mentioned you can have hermaphrodism or you can have your flowers turn perfect or you have both male and female flowers on the same plant. Which one is that for cannabis? So let's say um, when when I refer to something as, uh, let's say, uh, responding in a hermaphroditic way. It's when they have uh, female flowers that out of nowhere, one is uh, one has a few male flowers on it. And in the cannabis industry, they refer to these as bananas. <laughs> but um, but that and they're and they're quite distinct, you know, um, and ethylene in combination with heat 
and other environmentals can cause the plant to act very differently with different cultivars. Well, and that's a problem with cannabis because we're looking specifically for the female flowers. Is that correct? Yes. And we don't want pollen at all because that makes the female flowers stop blooming. Is that correct? I mean, obviously they're pollinated, so they're done. Yes. And depending on the genetics, it can have different responses. But overall, you're right. We do not want male flowers and we do not want pollen. So cannabis growers are only growing female flowers to either produce shelf flower or then for extracts. Perfect. So that's that's some fun plant biology for you. <laughs> um Trying to think. So what are some common problems that you come across as you're working with clients who are trying to learn how to grow or just trying to get their growth started? So something that's uh, that's significant is uh, proper sanitation protocols. And it's interesting because cannabis um, has a very finicky pest called a root aphid. And this, before coming to fluence, I had never seen a root aphid. Um, and supposedly it's in a few other crops, not near as bad, but in, in cannabis it's quite awful. And based on the regulations that many of the states have, growers are very limited in what they can use to prevent it and treat it. And so at the end of the day, it comes down to your sanitation practices and how your rooms are separated and the precautions you take from moving from veg to flower and vice versa. Um, and I, I just I, that's a challenge, especially for growers who, let's say, have a fixed design for their facility. Um, and, you know, for for those who maybe didn't think, obviously, about sanitation to that extent, um, it, it can be a challenge. Uh, when it comes, if, if you end up having, you know, a pest like root aphids, that is something that I have seen. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that seems to be one of the biggest challenges when you're talking about sanitation or even worker safety and just flow um, as you're working in the facility in general is you always have to build for it. Uh, you can't just kind of build whatever and then try and slap it on afterwards. You know, if you, if you just kind of build it improvisationally and you don't plan it out, what you wind up doing is making it more difficult for your, your staff to do things like the way they would keep everything clean or keep root aphids out. You make it work, more work for them. And anytime you're running a facility, like you're always going to run into time pressures. You're probably not ever going to have a time when you're like, oh, there's nothing to do. I guess we'll be, <laughs> we're just going to do extra mopping today. Like that just never happens. No, no, it doesn't. That The, the sanitation protocols need to be built into growers' uh, predetermined schedules for their, their different cycles and the interchanges of, of their flower rooms. And many growers should have buffers in between cycles, either each cycle or every other cycle, ideally each one, to where there is time dedicated to cleaning that room from top to bottom. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah, so you have to plan the time in, and you also want to design your facilities so the time it takes is minimal, so you can do that in maybe like a few hours instead of like two and a half days, you know? Yes, yep. And there, there, there's multiple strategies, you know, people can, you know, everything from scrubbing walls with, uh, you know, wall scrubbers to um, fogging rooms. Um, there's multiple strategies to help growers, you know, do this efficiently. So it's not that there's, you know, they have to be innovative at how they do it. There's multiple strategies to help them do it and do it right and fast. That's so cool. Um, so what are some other like really common issues you run into? And then, you know, like what are some some things like if you're going to de design a grow facility that you want to be sure to take into account? Like there are certain things you want to do to avoid root, af root aphids. You, you mentioned buffers between rooms. So what are some like common things that you see folks not do that should be perhaps done? So in regard to root aphid, you know, there's there's plenty of practices, like I said, that have already been proven in, in other industries. And 
at the end of the day, with cannabis, along with now organic crops um, and a few other different crops and production systems, we're having to think about pest management completely in a preventative mindset. Um, we, we cannot be reactive anymore. And growers, growers need to embrace, you know, entomopathogenic fungi and nematodes and other active ingredients that are approved but do not work in a reactive speed <laughs> or in a reactive way and how sometimes that a lot of these active ingredients uh, are only effective on certain life stages of the insects. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that so much... Uh, effort, so much more effort, should be put into growers properly having preventative strategies from the beginning and propagation. And for those growers who have mother stock production in mother stock um, to the point to where mother stock is completely separate from propagation, not in the same room if possible, because ideally um, each of these different stages of production should have different environmentals as well. Um, but based, you know, growers are limited on space and we understand that. So sometimes they're together. But um, taking, taking cuttings and um, dipping cuttings and specific active ingredients to prevent root aphid in the future. Um, and then throughout propagation, having a schedule to where you either drench the substrate you're using even in prop. So that substrate has these different uh, microbials present for the next stage of production. So you, you basically already have a buffer around the roots as a way to think about it. And then in yeah, in, you're like inoculating it beforehand. Exactly. Yep. And so, um, and then the same mindset. Let's say once it goes into the next stage of production, in in there during that stage under those environmentals, you have a different protocol and possibly different active ingredients because you want to constantly change whatever's coming in contact with the pest. Um, and that is is just. I don't think some people take into consideration how complex IPM is and how how much more attention they need to actually give it. So um, I want to come back to IPM in a second because it's the best. And really quick, can you tell <laughs> can you tell us what mother plants are about? What is that whole process? Sure. So um, mother stock is. Um, these are uh, plants that are grown in the vegetative stage for a long duration, and they're usually grown to a specific size and trained. And what I mean by trained is they're trained to have a specific habit um, or shape to them that allows growers to take cuttings efficiently every week. Um, and in other industries, um, just for a metric here, there's a company called Florensis in the Netherlands who has, I think, four to five different locations, and they produce one billion plants a year. Um, and this is from cuttings because they have multiple mother stock facilities throughout the world. Um, and so this is this just this just proves the point that there's been there's been plenty of research on mother stock um, and how to train it um, in the past. But this is the stage of production where growers um, it's basically their um, their holding tank for all of their genetics. If something were to go wrong in production, they have their mother stock to pull from. Um, usually what I recommend is that growers grow their mother stock to size and then keep that mother stock for a max of three to four months um, and then recycle and have um, a new mother from the clones off the old mother. Um, and more growers are starting to go towards tissue culture and this allows for cleaner, more viable and uh, um, let's say, uh, more vigorous plants than trying to continuously take clones off the same mother. 
Um, but but yeah, that's you you generate these mothers and you train them, and it allows the grower to have a constant feed of plants into propagation. Perfect. So it's just like any other plant that you'd propagate by taking a cutting and rooting it. Um, that's just how you grow cannabis because you're either growing strands that are optimized for CBD or THC production. So you want to make sure you're getting the same genetics. You're not, it's kind of like apples, you know, <laughs> you don't want to just plant a seed because you're not hundred percent sure what's going to come out. Um, and in states where THC isn't legal yet, you definitely don't want to have that because you don't, you want to be able to, to, to plant a cutting that you know is going to have below that legal limit of THC. So that's why we do like cutting propagation. back to IPM. Do you know if anybody's doing like banker plants in cannabis yet? Are we still like, what are the major pests there? No, I have not seen that once. Um, <laughs> and that's uh, a good question. I've thought about it myself, but um, you know, for some, let's say, and you know, uh, viola production, for example, with pansies, you know, aphids are, melon aphids are a huge issue and banker plants with parasitoids um, are extremely um, useful, and in some ways, I feel that banker plant and that predator is a very effective um, tool for that pest with that crop. Um, but in cannabis, I haven't seen it. Uh, if anything, in cannabis, you know, spider mites, russet mites, root aphid, um, fungus gnats, you know, are ubiquitous pretty much. Uh, I haven't seen shore fly. Western flower thrips are an issue. And then multiple other root diseases have, have reared their face within cannabis as well. But nope, that's a, it's a great question. And um, I personally have reared nematodes and persimilis. Um, and I, I feel that in some ways, you know, if a, if a grower were to understand how to do that better, they would they could possibly save a good bit of money um, rearing their own and have some truly viable predators there in-house. Right, yeah. Um, we should probably, like, crank it back a little bit and unpack some of that jargon. Oh, sorry. <laughs> For anybody who's listening. Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. I was like, yeah, persimilis, right. Um, <laughs> For anybody who like is not deep in the IPM world, so you mentioned nematodes. Those are just like little tiny, like almost microscopic worms. Sure, and sure. I, eat bugs. I can help explain. Yep. So, um, so yeah, nematodes are microscopic um, worms. That's what they look like, uh, and they they do they they enter the insect. They dis- excrete uh, a bacteria that kills the insect. So it's a it's a yeah, it's a microbial that's applied through the irrigation. So it's a very easy, easy microbial to um, to apply. And then persimilis. Oh, you just stick it in the irrigation tank. Yeah, well, um, I don't want to say that too fast for those who are listening, but um, there's certain precautions that you have to take into play. So like um, when you mix nematodes in, a, in, let's say, a five-gallon bucket, they have to be continually stirred. They can't sit and settle, otherwise they'll collapse. Mm. Um and yeah, like a big clump at the bottom. Exactly. Yep. And then uh, when they're applied through the injector, you have to make sure to take out the filter, and you have to make sure that your flow rate's not too fast. That you you know crush them, and then at the end of the hose, you have to make sure that your wand filter's taken out. So there's other precautions that you have to go into play. But generally, it's a very easy, um, beneficial to uh, apply. Yeah, I mean, like, you don't have to go walking around in a bunny suit spraying stuff. It's it's fairly straightforward. Yes, that's a great point. Yep, you don't. Um, and persimilis um, is a, a, it's a predatorial mite. 
Um, and I'm not sure for those who are listening if they can visualize what a mite looks like, but it's, it's translucent and you can see it, but it's extremely small. And Persimilis is what's considered to be a specialist. Um, and so it is, um, it is extremely good at attacking uh, the pest called a two-spotted spider mite. Um, and so usually growers bring in Persimilis when spider mite populations are pretty bad because Persimilis is a specialist uh, specifically for that pest, and they, uh, they are very, very effective. Very cool. Yeah, and spider mite is, um, it's like a, it's a really small, like, plant-eating mite. And if you look at them with a really strong magnifying glass, you can kind of see two dots on, on the middle of their bodies. They call them two-spotted spider mites. And they call them spider mites because they leave webbing all over the place, and there will be, like, bajillions of them inside this webbing. So if you have plants and they're like looking kind of sad and they have little tiny yellow dots all over them and webbing, you got two spots. Exactly. And in some cases before the webbing, um, they, they dwell on the underside of the leaf so that sometimes it's hard to detect them early on. Uh, but you sometimes leaves will appear like they're um, yellowing and many people automatically assume that that's nutrition. But um, during certain scouting protocols, meaning when the grower goes out and checks for pests, they need to flip over yellow leaves because that's the spider mites pretty much, you know, sucking out the chlorophyll. And many growers mistake that for nutrient issues. Yeah, and there's there's kind of like a certain like just micro dot pattern to it that like once you've seen it a couple of times, you're like, oh, there it is. Um, But your first couple of times, yeah, it's still going to look kind of new. Oh, banker plants. <laughs> I don't know if we're not using those for cannabis, maybe we don't have to go into it. But like that's um, so what will happen is like, OK, you're growing tomatoes and you want to have uh, parasitoids and predatory wasps that will eat the things that are eating your tomatoes. So these parasitoids need to have something to eat. So they're there if pests come into your greenhouse. But you don't want to take a bunch of those pests and put them in your greenhouse. So what you do is you get a different plant that has a different kind of pest on it that those predators will also eat. So that they're, like a, a really good example is I think for tomato greenhouses, they'll get little papaya plants. And those papaya plants have a white fly that lives on them that won't eat tomatoes. But the predatory wasps can eat both the papaya white flies and the tomato white flies. So if your tomatoes are chilling out and they're pest free, that's fantastic. They'll just eat the papaya white flies. But if you have tomato pests come in, you already have a healthy population of these wasps ready to rumble. So that's what banker plants are all about. And they're fun. And I think they can be really cost effective, more so than like calling up a company and saying, please send me, <laughs> you know, a couple of sacks of wasps. No, I agree. And I think that um, when we talk about certain industries that are monocultures, so um, growers that only focus on growing one species of crop or one, one, one uh, genus, then a banker plant system is very effective because you are you know, limited on the pests that you're going to come in contact with because of the type of plant you're growing. Um, in some industries, let's say for flower production or ornamental production, uh, in some cases in, let's say, a 5,000 square foot section of the greenhouse called a bay, you can have... Um, you know, 15 different species of plants <laughs> and each one right, has its so own less. own um, pests and a banker system is not very efficient for that kind of system. Yeah, it's less effective. So that's good because it, I think it's, it's really important to kind of talk about not just individual techniques, but there's this whole system that you have to make them fit into and you have to understand the entire thing. So kind of pointing out like, yes, banker plants, here's what they do, here's where they work, here's where they're not as effective, I think is really useful. Um, 
in looking at that whole picture. Any other big stuff you see that tends to kind of come up a lot in cannabis? Um, something I have seen uh, is fusarium. Um, uh, fusarium oxysporum, that is a uh, water pathogen um, that um, either can hurt the roots uh, or it can get into the vascular of the plant. So uh, I guess we could say in the stems of the plant. Um, and start to degrade the vascular and the plant will then resemble wilting. Um, and so fusarium we've seen a good bit and it's, it's very, in some cases, very difficult to detect um, because you won't see symptoms until the plant is under stress. So, um, and in mother stock, it can be very, very dangerous. So you can have fusarium infect a mother stock plant and it be present in every single stem of that plant, but that mother's, yes, and the, the problem is the environment is so perfect in some ways, not perfect, but it's, it's very, um, very controlled and very conducive to the type of growing that they want from other stock plants, that the plant never comes under stress. And so the grower never has a chance to identify that that plant is actually diseased. And so the problem is when you take a cutting off of that mother plant, you have latent fusarium in that cutting that then goes from one room to another room. And it does spread through water. So eventually, as that cutting grows, it will produce roots. Those roots will be infected um, and it will spread in your water supply. And that's why... Yeah, say so it'll get into your irrigation system. Exactly. And depending on the different types of irrigation systems growers use, it, this can be a, an extreme problem or it can actually be, you know, controlled quite easily if, let's say, they're using drippers versus a flood table. Um, so... Yeah, fusarium is something that I have seen um, growers uh, deal with because it's it's tricky when you're when you're dealing with water. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's something you see kind of over and over again anytime you have a nursery environment. Is there's basically two ways to water plants. Well, there's a few. One is you kind of drop the water from overhead. That can either be like a sprinkler kind of shower head system, you know, or just a watering can. Or you can use like drip tubes that go directly into the pot or the soil and they don't make a lot of muss. Or you can have kind of like almost like a kiddie pool that they're all sitting in and every once in a while you fill it up a little bit and then drain it back down. And those kiddie pool kind of drain and flood systems are really bad for spreading disease because they're all kind of like marinating in the same, you know, pool of water for a while and stuff will spread. Um, especially things that swim, like certain spores will do that. <laughs> but um, fusarium is pretty bad for that too. I worked in a plant diagnostic clinic at one point and we got some samples in from a tomato greenhouse that said like, hey, we're having some kind of wilt problem. Help us figure out what it is. Uh, we think it's it's this, and we just um, we just honestly took some scotch tape, like stuck it all over. Like this is our diagnostic system. Um, you get some scotch tape so you can pick up whatever's on the surface. Um, drop a little bit of dye on it, stick it on a slide, and look at it. And there are fusarium spores everywhere. Like fusarium has this really distinctive kind of canoe-looking spore, and they were everywhere and you just look at the microscope and you're like oh shit dude i got bad news <laughs> you know like he had it everywhere well and the those the canoe spores um uh they're called macro spores and the reason they're called macro is because one spore can have five cells up to five or six cells in it and each of those cells can 
each infect a cell on a route. And so the pace of infection can accelerate very, very fast. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's kind of a mess. It is. And I, the scotch tape reminded me of um, um, something that I have been able to at least recommend to, to growers that I think is good for people to know is that for many of these pathogens, um, you know, it takes time to send samples to a plant diagnostic clinic sometimes with how fast people are going. And, you know, and many times you're going to be 100% accurate when you send samples in versus doing things in-house, depending on, you know, who you have there and the, the abilities you have to test. But growers, um, they can order what's called selective media plates. And these are, these are pe Petri dishes that allow them uh, to test for these different pathogens in-house. And each of these Petri dishes only allows a specific pathogen to grow. And so that's an easy way, let's say that you think your plant has fusarium, you take a cutting, you, you sterilize the cutting, and you open it up and put it on the Petri dish. If fusarium is in that cutting, it will grow in that Petri dish, and that's an easy way for growers to figure out they have a problem. Right, yeah, and you do want to be careful with those and just like handle them carefully because if you do get a positive, now you've got a petri dish full of this thing. <laughs> now, granted, you know, yeah, if you're in a greenhouse that already has that problem, it's, you know, it may already be everywhere. But if and when you do that, you want to make sure you throw it away, like, like, like cook it or like seal it triple bagged, you know, before you throw it away kind of thing. Yep, definitely. It's, there's like every plant's got some kind of fusarium that's after it. It does, and that, that that's a good point as well. Is that people need to need to make sure you know when they do seed fusarium, what species they're dealing with, because you could have different species attack the same plant, and then your your protocols and the active ingredients you use to kill it need to be specific to that species. Delicious. <laughs> it's quite it's quite pretty on a petri dish. They're they're purple and 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 yeah. white. But anyway, we can talk about that later. Oh no, yeah, like we, we're you know we're we're culturing all these fungi, and they're like, if you get something pink and purple and it's pretty, don't breathe it. Like don't <laughs> don't like open up the lid and then like breathe it in because some fusariums have like toxins and stuff in them. So they're like, watch out for the pretty ones; they'll get you. So good times in the lab. <laughs> 